Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Amen. Hey man, cut off my knees And put an end to my search It's easy to sell your soul When you don't know what it's worth Would you know good, Ann Camp? You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I know we often take this time to kind of talk about sports and what's going on. One thing that I noticed in the sports world, Chris, was that the Lakers are are losing, but some in the Laker nation might find it consolation that I guess they have somebody breaking records every now and then. I know they have a a losing record. We're unsure if they're even going to make it to the play-in this year, but I guess it's good that they have guys that are are breaking uh, scoring records, even though they're scoring less uh, than the other team. Any thoughts about that, Chris? Yeah, no. People have to uh, find their joy where they can. <laughs> that's 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 a that's one way of putting it. That, that's one way to put a, a a different spin on it. Something else that's going on in the news, Chris, that I thought we needed to talk about, even though it's not in with our our top three topics, is what's going on with these confidential documents. So first and foremost, we hear you know er- earlier, I guess last year, we heard that Donald Trump had confidential documents in places that they shouldn't have been. Right. Uh, And so that, you know, people make a big, a big deal about that, which it is significant. It's not, it's nothing small. I I don't want to downplay it. Um, But then we find out that Biden has confidential documents uh, that were in places that they should not have been like his garage. Um, Now the difference between those two, and we don't exactly know what the documents were, especially when it comes to Biden. The difference is that Biden is, uh, giving the documents back. He's not trying to keep them and things like that. And we did see that with, with Trump. But it's not just Biden. Now it looks like uh, former Vice Pe- President Pence actually had confidential documents. If, if this says nothing else, there's quite a bit of sloppiness uh, going on with these confidential documents. The other thing that might happen, and this does happen in government, is that they're slapping confidential on documents that may not be confidential. Now, the reason that people might do that, and I don't know this for sure, but it does happen. The reason that somebody might do that is when you say a document is confidential, then nobody can, you know, if you do a Freedom of Information Act, which just so you guys know, every citizen has the right to see government documents. Government documents don't belong to the people in government. Government documents belong to the people. They belong to you. So as a general matter, you can always do an open records request if it's local, a Freedom of Information Act request to get documents to find out what's happening in government. Just so you know that. Uh, and so sometimes what happens, probably more often than it should, is people uh, say, you know, people in government mark something confidential when it really shouldn't be confidential. That could be part of it. There's a lot of things that could be happening. What, what is your take on, on on this really quickly, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I probably have given most of my attention to that last piece that you talked about, which is uh, that there's probably an overclassification of documents uh, within kind of like the administrative state. And I just like remind people, like 
the thing that like prevents us from knowing certain things about like the investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy is this classified marking that you put on documents. And so uh, when you see, you know, the, the sitting president, the for, immediate former president, the immediate former vice president, all having the same sort of issue, it might suggest that just maybe it's not that everybody who's ever been in the White House is crazy, but some some consideration should be given to the fact that maybe some of these documents uh, are being classified and, and don't necessarily need to be. Yeah, and like we said, at, at least there is some sloppiness going on, uh, a failure to really to to really drive home the point of where documents should be and where they shouldn't be. But I'll end by saying this, Chris, which is if it was the end of the world when Trump did it, because for a lot of people, they could not believe that this could ever happen. This was just, you know, beyond the pale. And then when when it was Biden, they didn't feel this necessarily the same way. Let's just yeah. make sure that we're consistent, right? Yeah, because the same thing we react to certain things. We shouldn't be as hyperbolic because when it comes back, when it comes back to you, you, you probably would want people or to your side, you know, whatever yeah. side that may be. Uh, you may be talking about it a little diff- bit differently. Go ahead, though, Chris. Yeah, no, I was just going to say the same thing is on the flip side. If it was not the end of the world when it was uh, Donald Trump, then it yeah. can't be the end of the world now when it's Joe Biden. And it, it's funny to see in this this close proximity of time, like people completely flipping their script and like totally tying themselves into knots, try, trying to make the exact same thing so vastly different. Uh, so very soon after the initial uh, instance. It's kind of hilarious to me. Yeah, and there are some differences, but the underlying issue, which is having classified documents where they're not supposed to be, there's not that much difference. And so you're right. We should be uh, consistent in how we react, cutting both ways. As always, y'all know we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. We also want to shout out all those other folks that give to our Patreon if you want to give to the Church Politics Podcast and receive extra episodes. So every episode that we do, uh, we don't necessarily put it out. Some of those are premium episodes. If you want to hear those episodes as well, go to our Patreon.com slash Church Politics. So you know what it is, y'all. Grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Chris, as we often do, I would like to start with a little bit of scripture, if you don't mind, sir. Uh, And it goes something like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Those are the words of Jesus Christ in Luke 16 verses 19 through 25. 
But maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe you need more scripture to understand the importance of this issue with the poor. So let me give you a little bit more. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to to the needy and to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Now, I understand some of y'all don't like Deuteronomy. So let me give you something else if that's not enough. Whoever a, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. Proverbs 22 verse 9. And lastly, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 14:31. The Bible talks quite a bit Chris as you already know about the poor and how we should treat the poor. The place that the poor have in God's uh in God's sight. All right? Now, apparently, some Iowa Republicans want to reform SNAP benefits in their state. Uh, SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's basically food stamps. These are food stamps for eligible Americans, meaning Americans that have a low income, to receive a monthly monthly amount of these uh, food stamps, basically, to buy groceries. Now, they actually used to be paper stamps. Uh, now the money, I think, is put on a debit debit card. It's a federal program, uh, but it's administered by states. And so the states decide who is eligible and uh, they actually issue the monthly allotments. Now, the government pays 100 percent of the amount of the money that's placed on the cards, but but they s- split the administrative cost 50 50 with the states. OK, so we have 39 Iowa Republicans who co-sponsored a bill that we require SNAP recipients to abide by more a more restricted list of food items, and it would also add a job requirement. So recipients would need to work 20 hours a week in order to get the benefits. Okay, so if for some reason you know uh, you weren't working, uh, even if it it was it was a, a personal problem and you weren't working, I guess your kids wouldn't be able to eat because you're not working. Go figure. Uh, the program would no longer in under this bill, the program would no longer allow recipients to buy these items. And, and this is what really struck me, Chris. Under this bill, recipients of, of SNAP funding would not be able to buy white bread. They would not be able to buy American cheese. They would not be able to buy fresh meat with their SNAP car. The meat they would they would be able to buy would only be canned meat. It would also prevent them from buying butter, cooking oils, spices, white rice, rice noodles, and check this out, canned vegetables, fruits, and soups. I just want y'all to you know, I want y'all to think about that for a second. That's a pretty big list. And one of the things that stuck out to me, Chris, when I saw this list of things is not only that it makes it harder for people to shop, because a lot of times these folks are shopping at places that may not have a lot of fresh fruit, fruit, may not have a lot of fresh vegetables and, and all that stuff. But a lot of the stuff that you're now forcing them to buy is more expensive. White bread is the cheapest kind of bread. American cheese is fairly sliced. American cheese is, is fairly cheap. 
but you're cutting this off, right? So, so you're making it more expensive. You're putting a heavier burden on them. And maybe they just like some of those foods. Now, I'm not opposed to, to putting some limits on what people can buy, but this just, just feels to be quite excessive, uh, to, to say the least. I mean, it's restricting one's ability to make their own food choices. Maybe think maybe these folks think they're teaching these poor people a lesson. Maybe if they can't eat as much, then it'll be incentivize it'll incentivize them to be more like you or the or more like you would want them to be. But I think that this is is wrongheaded. And Chris, I'll be I'll be straight up with you. I would say that at best this is paternalistic, right? You deciding exactly what somebody can have and limiting it to a to a um an extent that to me is unreasonable. Maybe it's just a lack of concern, which is probably a little bit worse. But at, at its worst, it almost seems like a disdain for the poor. I, I truly hope that as they were creating this list, as they were making these ju- these work requirements, which um, much of this, and I want to be fair, go along with, with, with what WIC kind of requires. Um, I hope the budget didn't play too big of a role in this. I hope other things didn't play too big of a role on on kind of putting these restrictions uh, on these people. Now, some people, uh, you know, on the other side may say, well, this is a matter of avoiding fraud. This is about nutrition and so on and so on. So we want to voice uh, that side of the conversation as well. But um, I just don't think this is healthy. I think there's a lot of reason to question it. Many Iowans have come out uh, against this. But Chris, what, what is your thought just on this? This, I guess some would call it a reform of the administration of SNAP in the state of uh, Iowa. Yeah. So I was um, I was glad that you that you uh, uh, grabbed this for a point of discussion. Uh, it is it's one of these things. And I think if somebody goes back and listens to a bunch of uh, church politics podcast episodes, you won't find many times when I say that something uh, or someone is racist. Uh, but I would suggest that this is deeply racist and totally dishonest um, because it is, uh, you do have people on on kind of like the, the other side who are promoting this legislation, uh, talking about this from a, a, a fraud uh, perspective, but there's no evidence um, of mass fraud uh, when it comes to SNAP uh, nationally, and especially not specifically in the state of Iowa. Uh, there are some people who are talking about this from the perspective of sort of nutrition, which which would be uh, uh, grossly paternalistic, but this is not about nutrition because this this package of, of legislation is saying that you, you can't buy fresh meat, uh, but you can buy canned meat. Canned meat is a lot more sodium-laden and unhealthy than is fresh meat. You can't buy uh, spices uh, and, um, you know, different things, even salt and pepper, I think you can't buy, uh, here. So this is, this is not a nutrition based thing. You have the, uh, speaker of the house there in the state of Iowa, uh, saying that this is, he, he's got a quote here. It's these entitlement programs. He says, they're the ones that are growing within the budget and putting pressure on us being able to fund other priorities. 
But the governor just announced that they have a $1.9 billion surplus uh, in Iowa state budget. Uh, And as you pointed out, the federal government funds 100% of the food cost, the actual cost of the SNAP program. Uh, The 50-50 split is on administration and all these new rules will increase the amount of administration that's necessary for SNAP in the state of Iowa. So this would probably uh, increase cost uh, instead of decreasing costs. So the only kind of logical reason for this approach uh, is to to be specifically you know targeting uh, people of color. Uh, because you you get into this list and you have people of color, the foods that that those households eat, and I can tell you, Justin, some of the stuff is not is not so so much like a, a, a income level thing. It, it is an ethnic community thing. Like I I, I know a lot of uh, you know very solidly middle class uh, Mexican American families that I'm personally friends with, and when I have dinner at their house we have refried beans and it's not because they're poor it's because they're Mexican. And this is part of like the cuisine that they prepare to eat. So this is, this is, I think that foodless part is, is terrible. Um, but what I think is even worse is that the foodless part of this, I think is all uh, smoke screen and kind of a distraction tactic um, from the real goal of this uh, legislation, which you touched on, because uh, this bill is never going to be enforced as written uh, in terms of the food list, right? So you because you, you have um, major lobbying groups uh, in the state of Iowa who have already come out against these this regulation. One of those major lobbying groups is Tyson uh, Foods, uh, and Tyson Foods doesn't want this list because Tyson foods wants to create a bunch of crap food uh, and sell it to uh, to poor people. And, you know, I will note, we maybe talk about this on a different podcast, there's no regulation on corporations selling unhealthy stuff to the population, just, you know, regulation on, on people who get snapped and able to buy it. Um, but Tyson and, and all these other lobby groups are not going to let this go through. Even if they pass it through the legislature and the governor signs it, it would have to be approved by uh, the USDA, um, the United States uh, Agriculture Department would have to approve it, and and they're not going to approve it. So I think this is all kind of like smokescreen so that people pay attention to this food listing while they really push through the other draconian elements of this, uh, which you talked about uh, in, in your intro to this. I could see a compromise, so-called compromise bill uh, that goes through that does put like this new income limit, uh, which which says that you can't have over two, $2,750 in assets and savings um, combined. Uh, if, if, so if you save more than $2,700, then you're off of the SNAP program. Uh, and again, those of us who are like running households and living in this uh, uh, very badly impacted by inflation world that we're living in right now, $2,750 is not like a ton of money to have in savings, especially when you think about this is not savings. This is overall assets, right? So they're like literally going to be counting. Like if your child has a 
savings account that the your their grandparent or somebody in the church started a savings account for the kid, that kid's savings account is included in the the assets that your family has. Uh, if you have a second vehicle, the first vehicle doesn't count against the assets. But if the household has a second vehicle, no matter how many people are in the household, uh, if the household has a second vehicle, um, that vehicle, the value of that vehicle uh, is going to be counted against the assets. That means virtually every household with two um, two vehicles are going to be very close to getting put out the program because there are not a lot of vehicles, Justin, that actually drive and can't be valued over $3,000. You know, they're going to be performing new uh, assessments. They're going to be assessing these people on a monthly basis uh, to see whether they continue to qualify uh, for the program. Uh, and, you know, this kind of work requirement, especially when, when the, the two car thing comes into play, and then you add that work requirement. A lot of times it's very uh, two two people working, two adults working in a home are, are a lot of times dependent on having that second vehicle. Right. So if you can't have that second vehicle, one of those folks uh, may not be able to work. But this new law is going to say both of them have to be working at least 20 hours, but they can't have that second vehicle. Uh, and and the other thing that I would say uh, is, is that the the pro family conservative should be opposed to this. Uh, because there are some people who make the trade-off, who say, I know what it's going to cost my family in terms of finances in this new economy for one of the parents to stay home, be a homemaker, uh, be able to give that kind of attention to children. But we're going to make that trade-off. And part of the way we're going to make ends meet is that we have uh, a SNAP benefit. Right. Uh, but with the work requirement, that option has been taken off of the table, which is something that I think that pro family conservatives should actually be in support of uh, making it easier for parents to be at home with their children, not more difficult. Uh, so this is, is very, very bad public policy. And I, I, I think that it's kind of the worst sort of politics, because my view of it is that this food list thing is inserted into the legislation to cause the kind of firestorm that it's causing so that people don't pay attention to the fact that they are going to drive a bunch of people uh, off the rolls of this federal benefit that people should have access to. There's something to think about, man. And I want to be let me say this before I, I respond to what you were saying. I want to be very clear because when I first shared this, I had some Folks hit me up on Facebook like, wait, when does this go into effect? This is uh, this would it hasn't it hasn't been passed yet. This would only be in Iowa, right? So I think some people thought because it was a federal benefit that it was it was everywhere. And I just want to be clear on that if you didn't catch it when I first said it. This seems to me to be mean-spirited, right? I think on the back end, possibly, I mean, you, you, all of this is done in a, in a state surplus. So you, you mentioned that. Um, and maybe on the back end somewhere that they could cut some costs here and there that further down the line if they got people off of it or whatever. Um but let me say this, and, and I think both parties have things that Christians in those parties should really care about and, and be concerned about. This is one of those to me. Um, there are certain things when I hear about what's being done in education and all that stuff that, that it makes me not even want to call myself a Democrat. This should make a lot of Christian Republicans embarrassed. And let me say this right here. 
if white evangelicals in Iowa came together today and said no, they could crush this within minutes. It would be taken off the agenda. People would be apologizing. They would be saying, no, this was a misunderstanding. We Oh, we forgot to put this or that in. It would be gone. I believe, and I'm not, I'm not in Iowa, but I believe that white evangelicals in Iowa within a day could shut this down completely. And do you know the impact that that would have and the message that w- that would send across the nation? We have so many people that are like, man, what can we do to, to you know, for, so for people to see us for who we are and not be misunderstood and to kind of get some some uh, some some trust and credibility back. These are the type of things that you can do. Turn around, look at your own side and say, no. This is ridiculous. You better withdraw it immediately. And Christians on both sides of the aisle have the opportunity to do that. But many, much of the time, we're too worried about what's going on on the other side to take care of the stuff that's going on within our sphere of influence. If y'all wanted to stop it, you can stop it now. Leaders could come together. It doesn't even have to be everybody. It just needs to be a critical mass of people who stand up, have a press conference, send out some letters, make a few phone calls and say, absolutely not. I think so. I mean, this is this is such a uh, an important moment. And, you know, I'll, I'll give, uh, you know, two seconds of, of free consulting. If, if, if you are a, a a conservative, a Republican concerned about national politics, looking at 2024 uh, presidential cycles like this is the moment um, where you could begin to see a lot of folks who are not finding a home. Uh, in the Democratic Party because of some of this stuff uh, that's happening, like you suggested, Justin, in the schools and different things like that. But if 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 national figures, even folks outside of the state of Iowa, just stood up and said, this does not represent um, Christian conservatives, right? Because it is mean-spirited. Uh, it is targeting the poor. It is quite unnecessary. And the way it has been rolled out is completely dishonest. And all of that is in violation of Christian ethics. And so we oppose it. People would hear that. People would see that. And I think people would would, uh, move more quickly toward your side. Uh, But when there's silence on issues like this, uh, it is what freezes people uh, in sort of in the middle and, you know, we we lose folks from the entire discourse and I think from uh, the electoral process and from a lot of different important elements of our civic society because neither side has the ability to, to welcome, uh, welcome folks in. And this is one of those moments where you could welcome a lot of new people into your coalition because this is, this is just wrong. Like I said, it, it targets the poor. Um, and the way that is rolled out is dishonest. So nothing about it, uh, even even if you wanted to have a conversation about we need to get uh, entitlement spending down in the state of Iowa. I don't see where that logic is coming from if you got a $1.9 billion uh, surplus. But if that is your conversation, at least make that the conversation. This stuff uh, is, is too expensive, so we're going to push people off the rolls. Don't lead with this foodless nonsense that you know the USDA is never going to approve um, so that we don't even have the conversation about 
the asset limit and the second car stuff and uh, the work program requirement and the custodial parents cooperation requirement where you have to demonstrate uh, if you're a custodial parent where the other parent is supposed to be paying child support, you have to demonstrate that you're cooperating uh, with the state's attempts to collect that child support or else you get kicked off the benefit. That's illogical, Justin, because if I'm, if I'm a custodial parent and the, the other parent is supposed to be paying me child support, they're under investigation from the state because they're not paying child support. And then I get kicked off a of snap because I'm not cooperating. I'm just taking more resources from this kid who's already under resource because the child support is not being paid. Like everything uh, that I can see about this is, is just bad. Um, and it's a great opportunity for Christians to stand up against something. Absolutely. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. Well, Chris, as if the FBI didn't need didn't have enough gut going on, as if they needed some more trouble to be in. Uh, According to NPR, a former high level FBI agent is facing several charges for his alleged work with a sanctioned Russian oligarch. Charles McGonigal, the former special agent in charge of counterintelligence in the FBI's New York office. So this is a high up uh, guy uh, is accused of working with Oleg Deripaska. Uh, who has been on the U.S. sanctions list since 2018. McGonagall's involvement with the Russian billionaire involved taking secret payments for investigating uh, Deripaska's rivals. That's pretty serious. Uh, He also worked uh, to get uh, Deripaska off the U.S. sanctions list, which is in violation of federal law. And prosecutors say that McGonagall, who is uh, 54 years old, was well aware that his work with this Russian oligarch, broke the the law. The former FBI agent had worked in Russian counterintelligence, organized crime, and counterespionage during his more than 20 years with the agency. So he is charged with conspiring to violate and evade U.S. sanctions in violation of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Um, Chris, we've already talked about all the things going on with the FBI. All the ways, just not even now, but just over the years, that they have just kind of eroded their uh, credibility. I mean, first and foremost, and we talked about this a little bit before, it starts with J. Edgar Hoover, who is probably one of the most evil, one of the most evil people that you could possibly have had in in government. Uh, Some of the things that he did. And again, you can hear more about some of the things that he did if you if you get uh, Patreon, because we talked about that on one of the episodes. But as important as this agency is. To have can over and over to have these uh, just crazy incidences, these, these crazy violations of the public trust, these abuses of power. This is somebody who was over a whole department in the FBI's New York office. He's over counterintelligence. This is somebody who early on was in the conversations when people were saying that Trump was colluding with uh, with the Russians. 
And here you have him making money on the side with a Russian oligarch. It's one of those stories, and they were saying this too on um, Breaking Ball. It's one of the stories that you can't even really make up. This is like a, a movie or something, right? So much talk about Russian collusion and the FBI and what they were doing about it and who was involved. And come to find out, the FBI themselves, through one of their agents, was involved. Chris, help me out here. What's going on, man? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's crazy. The guy investigating Russia collusion is uh, involved in Russian collusion. Uh, very insane. The The big issue for me is that the the thing that makes this guy uh, McGonagall, what makes his um, activity illegal is that this particular Russian oligarch was under sanction. And it seems to me, best I can read it, I'm no specialist in international affairs, but uh, it seems to me that the implication is if this guy was not under sanction, this would either not be illegal or at least not as easy to spot. Um, and so when I look at that and, and look at how brazen this activity is, it makes me question how... Um, how rare it really is, right? Because I, I think a lot of the conversation, as I've read a few kind of like uh, news articles about it, um, a lot of the news articles kind of dis- are discussing this as if it's it's news because it's rare. And my question is, is it rare that it happens or is it rare that somebody gets, uh, gets busted? Or is it rare that somebody's doing this kind of thing with a, a an oligarch from another country who is under sanction? Is it rarely discovered or is it actually happening on a rare uh, basis? Yeah, that's a good yeah. question. And I, I, it, 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 to me, it feels like when somebody is this brazen with behavior that it couldn't be, you know, completely uncommon uh, in, in the field. And as you said, this is just not a good time for uh, the FBI and various aspects of the sort of administrative state uh, to be dealing with yet another, uh, you know, scandal. I mean, e- even I mean, we were talking in the in the intro about the uh, the documents, the, the classified documents that uh, presidents and vice presidents and who knows who else uh, has uh, in their possession. This stuff has to be straightened out, cleaned up, uh, and worked through so that people in the United States of America can reasonably feel like they can trust their government. That is such a basic, basic uh, element of a functioning democracy. And something has to be done to straighten this out. Because the type of power that the FBI has can be very dangerous when abused. Right? A lot of it is kind of covered in secret it's a power, you know, things are happening that we're not necessarily voting on before they happen. Uh, there's a lot of information that can be misused. There's a lot of access to technology that can be very invasive uh, to, to, to citizens. Uh, so I'm, I would never go so far as to say that we don't need um, a Bureau of Investigation. I also wouldn't say that everybody in the Bureau, and I know you're not saying this, but we certainly wouldn't say that everybody in the Bureau of Investigation is part of this culture of corruption. There are folks that put their lives on the line that have, you know, aren't seeing their families as much. You know, I can't even imagine some of the stuff that the dedication that some of these folks have and the commitment that they've made to this country. 
salute to the folks who are doing that. But we do know that there within parts of the FBI, there is a culture of corruption, which I think tarnishes the organization. And I think it hurts those who got into this to do the right thing, because even with all the uh, the controversies, controversies that we hear, there's a whole lot of stuff going on or being prevented that we don't hear about. Right. Where, where people are working very hard. But again, just like the CIA, when you have these kind of very secretive you know, administrative organizations that it's very hard to hold them accountable. And so when you do hear something and something does come out and you see there is corruption, you've got to do something about it. You've got to say something about it because, the, again, the nature of the authority that they have, the nature of the power and what they can get their hands on really can do some serious damage if you don't have people in there who have integrity. This is somebody who's been there for over 20 years who made it up quite pretty far up the ladder without people recognizing that the integrity just wasn't there. That's a problem. That's something that needs to, to, to really be addressed. And I hope I hope this is, is taken seriously. Uh, at this point, I don't think anybody can say that it, that, you know, further investigations, that serious reform is in order because we cannot continue to have this this level of stuff happening. And where's the oversight? Where's the internal oversight? Um, because it looks like this dude was, you know, his sanction started in 2018. I can't remember exactly when this whole uh, interaction started, this kind of collusion started, this conspiracy. But you wish that we could prevent it or there was some type of accountability that it would have disallowed it from the beginning. And, and that's another part that I think is uh, something that we should be concerned about. Chris, I'll let you take us out. Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, I, I, I take this very, very seriously. I think that this issue of trust uh, might be kind of like the civic, um, political, social issue of our time uh, in the United States, because this whole system of government and way of life, um, you know, it depends on uh, the commitment of the people to the system of government. Uh, and the more people are unable and unwilling to believe in the system, to trust that government, uh, not that it's perfect, but that it works at a very basic level. Um, if we lose that, we lose the whole approach, the whole way of life. Uh, and so these, these little conspiracies, conflicts, controversies, and corruption uh, that continue to pop up, they have to be dealt with. Uh, and then there has to be some way to begin to demonstrate that we are moving into a sort of a fresh approach to these things and, and taking real efforts to restore trust. Um, I think that trust is in crisis right now in the United States. And trust is what a functional democratic uh, former government is, is sort of founded upon. Uh, and so I hope that people take this seriously. I, I sure do, too. Well, we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? 
As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the Ann Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast for our last segment. And I want to talk a little bit, and this maybe ties, you know, Chris might even tie a little bit into what we were talking about earlier. Some would try to say, uh, I want to talk about childhood obesity uh, because the American Academy of Pediatrics just uh, put out some guidelines that basically said that children struggling with obesity should be evaluated and treated early and aggressively, including with medications for kids as young as 12 and surgery for those as young as 13. Let me read that again. Children struggling, struggling with obesity, obesity should be treated aggressively with medication for children as young as 12 and surgery for children as young as 13, according to these new guidelines that I think were released last week again by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now, we know that obesity is a serious issue, Chris. Uh, Obesity affects about, I think, over 14 million young people in the United States. Researchers uh, have said that, and they said that if left untreated, obesity obesity can lead to lifelong health issues, including high blood pressure, diabetes, and depression. According to CBS News, for the first time, the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics guidelines sets an age at which uh, kids and teens should be offered medical treatment such as drugs and surgery in addition to intensive diet, exercise, and other behavior and lifestyle interventions. Now, I'm not a doctor or the son of a doctor, okay? And so I I don't claim to be. But it seems to me that there's this trend within medicine to say the answer is drugs and 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 surgery that and 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 I think the background behind this is what people are saying now is that obesity and I think we've known this for a while ob- obesity has a lot to do with genetics and all those things it is very hard for some people to get thin okay and and I think that's fair but for when we're talking about 12 and 13 year olds to say they have to get surgery or they have to start taking drugs for this instead of really honing in on diet, honing in on activity. Right. I mean, we're bigger than we used to be as a people. Is it because our genes have changed or is it because we have a different lifestyle to me, Chris? And I don't know. Again, I'm not I'm not giving medical advice here. But it seems like we too quickly give up 
on things like really serious diets, on things like more activity, more exercise, and automatically say, well, that's just the way it is. And to me, it seems like a, a kind of determinism, right? Where your genes determine everything about you and you just have to have surgery. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not your fault. And I think what our medicine does a lot today says it's, it's not your fault. And sometimes it's not completely your, your fault. But it says it wants to take all accountability off the person and just say, here, let me give you some drugs. Let me give you some uh, um, let me give you a surgery so that you don't feel bad about what's happening to you. And instead of trying to do your best to take initiative to change things yourself without the surgery and without the drugs. Am am I far off here, Chris? I mean, what what are your thoughts about this new uh, these new guidelines? Yeah, I. For me, and I think probably now a lot of people who listen to the Church Politics podcast have some idea of, of, of my kind of frameworks and leanings on things. But for me, this is a another case for why we need a, a complete overhaul of our health and wellness systems in the United States. Um, because like you, I am not a medical doctor and I'm not the son of a medical doctor. But I do know that when you are involved in public service, which people who write for the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics, uh, who who write for the CDC, um, the the FDA, like these people are in public service. And if you are in public service, then you should try to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And as long as we have a healthcare system, a wellness system uh, that is so focused on, um, on profit, then it's going to be difficult for people to trust uh, that system. If, if you're going to give public health advice, don't take payments from pharmaceutical companies. If you're going to give public health advice, don't take payments from big food companies. Because when you take that money and then your advice is obesity is a problem, what we have to do about it uh, is ignore what's in food, right? No regulations suggested, no new um, you know, uh, restrictions on- We're going to have to talk about the FDA sell. too. We're going to have right. to have a long conversation about the FDA on this, on this show. Yeah, Go ahead. we have to. Uh, but we're not going to touch FDA regulation. We're not going to talk about what's in the food. Uh, what we have to do is, uh, is sell people more medicine, right, and surgery. Um, now, maybe the, the posit that somehow our genes have changed so much in the last, like, less than 100 years uh, that we need to move in this direction. But it's really hard for me to buy that. Uh, because it sounds implausible, and wouldn't, wouldn't that be counter evolutionary? Though it would be Aren't very counter evolutionary over time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and 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 especially to deteriorate that much in such a a short period of time just seems really implausible. And when everything that you're saying seems to just happen to benefit the people who you're taking all this money from, it's hard to trust it. And so. Um, you know, cause even you said in your intro to this, like it, it is genetically, you know, there are some things in genetics. And so it is really hard, uh, for, uh, for some people to get, get thin. Um, it's really hard for some people to get fat. Like I, I know I have some friends who are, would, would be desperate to like gain some weight and they, they can't, 
bulk up, right? So those genetic things are at play. But in the United States today, statistically, we'll have to say it's really hard for most people to get thin. And that's not all genes. That's that's lifestyle. That's what we put in our foods. That's how we've organized our cities. That's how we structure our lives. And instead of putting all of our federal resources toward drugs and surgery, which is a windfall for the same pharmaceutical companies that are funding the research and paying uh, the so-called specialists who are giving this advice, maybe we could spread that money out and, you know, instead of just paying for uh, a, a surgery or a drug, maybe pay for uh, a gym membership, maybe pay for uh, mm-hmm. a dietitian. Like we have um, a couple of friends who are dietitians. And when, when you find out how much it actually costs to get like a, like a real dietitian to actually like work with you and help you develop like a, a eating plan that actually works for you, your body type, lifestyle, all that type of stuff, that stuff is expensive. And a lot of our uh, healthcare uh, coverage doesn't cover, especially the, the public coverage um, through Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of times that stuff is not covered. So maybe we could be thinking about a more expansive approach to this than just covering drugs and surgery. Uh, and so when you have a group of doctors who take a lot of money from food uh, makers and pharmaceutical companies, and then they come out and say the way we solve uh, obesity is not to pay attention to food or lifestyle, just have more drugs and surgery. It's man. a little suspect. So there's, t- man, you 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 make a very good point with that one because there's two ways to go about this. I went to the ideological side of it, where you now have people. I for- forgot what they call it, like food equality or something like that, right. where it doesn't matter what you eat. Like, so if yeah. I sat there and ate twenty uh, donuts, yeah. it would be the same as eating two apples. Yeah. There are really people out there, experts. These are the experts in our society that I think we called it food equality. We talked about it on here. That basically said it doesn't matter what you eat. All food is equal. Don't feel bad. Don't be shamed by what you eat. That's ideological, right? So some of this, I think, could be the ideology to say, hey, if you're obese or whatever, it's not your fault. It's not what about it's not about what you eat. It's not about the lack of exercise. It just is what it is. What Chris brought to the table was the economic side of this. Now, we already know when it came, you know, when it comes to these surgeries, these surgeries are expensive. If let's say so we're saying 14 million young people are affected by obesity, if a small percentage of them started to get these surgeries, that is mil- hundreds of millions of dollars going into the pockets of it. Now, we don't know this for sure. We're trying to connect the dots. We're trying to give you show you that, you know, here are the different possibilities of what could be going on. None of us were in the room when they decided to, to make this change and, and, and to promote this. But when we think about the surgeries, when we think about the pharmaceutical industry and how much money they would make if parents stopped saying, hey, let's go work out. Hey, let me get you in the sports league. Hey, let's not buy these Skittles. Uh, let's but let's start eating more healthy. But let's get the drugs. That's a lot of money. I didn't I didn't really think about it from that perspective. But you bring up a good point, Chris. Yeah. And, and that's why because we're not in the room. That's why you have to avoid the appearance of impropriety. Right. Exactly. I'm not in the room. And that's why I need the person who's going to be writing guidelines for uh, uh, health in, in 2025 to be able to stand up and clearly say, 
100% without equivocation. I haven't taken any money from phar- pharmaceutical companies. I haven't taken any money from big food companies. And I will future, not in right. the future take any money from those folks. Could you imagine, right, Justin, like, I, I'm a pastor. We have a lot of pastors in the End Campaign Network uh, who uh, teach a, a high view of, scri- of Scripture and a biblical theology. Right now, could you imagine if our congregation found out that we were like all getting thirty thousand dollars from like the Bible Society every year? Like, like it would just sell them Bibles, yeah. Right, it it would undercut the the credibility of our claims, right? And so, even if you do believe in a high view of Scripture, I would advise that. Even if the Bible Society came up with that kind of money and came to you and said, we want to give you personally all these uh, tens of thousands of dollars, and we want you to, to go out and do interviews and sell Bibles to people. Because um, like, e- even beyond like the Bible Society, like if the, the publishers of the English Standard Translation you know, were like, we're going to pay you all this money, you pump the ESV, like it, it would begin to undercut people's credibility and I really hope that nobody's actually doing that now that I'm thinking of this. But I'm, I'm, I'm painting it a certainly picture. wouldn't be with the American Bible Society. We, we know right. them and love them. They're good yes, people. It, it wouldn't be the, the Bible Society. Um, but yeah, it, we, you don't do those types of things. The Bible Society doesn't do those types of things because the men and women who are holding forth a high view of Scripture and trying to actively trying to convince other people to take that same position would not be credible if we were getting all these kickbacks. Um, And that's what you have in this situation. The very people who are making the recommendations are getting all kinds of kickbacks from the industries uh, that would uh, benefit from this. If if Medicaid and Medicare, uh, especially Medicaid for, for children, started covering these very few number of drugs that would be prescribed uh, to treat obesity, um, it, it would be a boon for those companies. And, and as, as you pointed out, uh, Justin, I think the ideological side to this is also important. For me, it makes it even more wicked because we have had a long history of, uh, of, of fat shaming and um, holding up an unrealistic view of kind of body type uh, uh, as as ideal. That's real injustice. That has real impact on real people's uh, mental health and their quality of life. And so the idea that these folks who are going to benefit economically will kind of latch on to this real justice issue uh, in order to start pushing actual nonsense that's going to benefit them financially, to me, that compounds yeah. uh, the the level of, of evil uh, and you wanna, in that kind of practice. And if you want to talk about discrimination, the discrimination that you see against people who are obese, there yeah. are certain professions where you're not going to see anybody who's obese in those professions. Yeah. The way that people who are overweight are treated in the marketplace is terrible. Now, and we don't need to compare evils. We can talk about racism. We can talk about classism. This is a, a, a real issue. And so, and so it is something that needs to be addressed. Um, I'm not sure that it needs to be addressed in this particular way. I think those this is one of those issues where 
the that the ideological side of it might have the right idea to say, man, we want to take away the stigma and things of that nature. They're just doing it in the wrong way and have come to the wrong conclusion about how that should happen. The other scary thing is that uh, the person that Biden has basically hired to create his dietary guidelines is all the way to the left on these issues. And another reason that I think in the future, Democratic administrations are going to have to find a way to look at the far left sometimes on this crazy stuff that has not gone gone through the public discourse that just comes out of some university and they just accept it and run with it. They've got to find a way to say, I can't govern like that. No, I'm not adding this person that goes that has these, these crazy ideas to my my administration. It's not going to happen. That's something that they're going to need to do in the future. Are they yeah. going to continue to run into these kind of problems? Well, go ahead. You can take us out. Yeah. And even if you're going to find a doctor that's far to the left on these things, at, at least find a doctor, uh, which the Biden administration has not done with the uh, with signing on uh, uh, this uh, Dr. Cody. I think uh, I didn't pull up the name, um, but find a doctor who's far to the left and hasn't taken money from pharmaceutical companies and hasn't taken money from food companies, um, because at least then, even if I disagree with that person uh, on an ideological basis, I at least can believe that they are arguing from a place of uh, genuineness and sincerity. It's very hard for me to believe that when that same person making the arguments that's going to benefit these industries have been paid by those industries. Right. They have been compromised. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's something that we have to talk about, man. I thought this was a great, a great back and forth. I'll be honest with you. I, I did not in, in my, in my preparation, I did not even connect the dots on the, the money side of it. But I think that's an, I think that's an excellent point that you make. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as usual on the church politics podcast. Uh, we enjoyed having it, uh, and campaign, you know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next time. And Kim, well, how about you? Yeah, Lord.